and welcome. Hey, pharmacists and physicians out there interested in how cannabis is quickly becoming used in modern medicine. Subscribe today to the CRX podcast. We're all locked in now. The CRX podcast delivers the best audio source of education, innovation, and evidence-based, evidence-based, evidence-based audio about medical cannabis and is the new companion of CRX magazine. Each episode features experts in the field highlighting timely, interesting, and practical topics, pain management, sleeping disorders, cancer therapy support, and much more. You want it all, don't you? Tune in to learn about the latest advancements in how cannabis is used in medicine and therapeutic. Did you find what you were looking for? Interested in sponsoring a podcast series about medical cannabis? Reach out to the Pharmacy Podcast Network today to learn how to reach thousands of listeners in the medical community. Visit crxpodcast.com. That's crxpodcast.com. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. With the opioid misuse and abuse problem on the rise, pain practitioners and lawmakers scrambling for strategies to help mitigate opioid risks. The pharmacist is in an interesting place within their communities, within specialty pharmacy, within geriatric care, to really be a conduit and a tool and a team member for a myriad of issues around the opioid epidemic, as well as pain management and the balance between those. There's an organization out there that has concentrated on creating uh, refined uh, practices um, as physicians, and the organization is called Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing, known as PROP, P-R-O-P, and I'm excited to have two members of PROP today with us, Dr. Andrew Kolodny and Dr. Jane Ballantyne. I want to welcome you to the Pharmacy Podcast Nation. Thanks for having us. Thanks. You're very welcome. So I'm going to start out with um, Dr. Jane Ballantyne. If you would just give us just a little background on yourself so our listeners know who you are, and then we're going to uh, jump over to Dr. Andrew as well. Okay. Um, well, I am an anesthesiologist and a pain specialist. So in the 1990s, having trained in anesthesia in the UK, I moved to Boston and was trained in pain management and uh, later became the chief of the pain program at the Massachusetts General Hospital. It was actually while I was chief of that program that it came to my attention that a lot of the patients that we were treating without thinking with opioids, because that was the that, that was the recommendation at the time, this was in the mid 1990s, we began to notice that a lot of them really weren't doing so well. And, and what, what concerned us was that it seemed that their pain was actually worse rather than better, particularly when they'd been taking opiates for a long time and particularly at high doses. So ever since then, I've been involved uh, in 
learning more about what it is that makes opiates not quite so useful when you've been using for them for a long time as they were when you first start using them, because we all know they gave you excellent pain relief when you first start using them. And I've made a study of this in my subsequent career. I now work in the University of Washington in Seattle, and we continue to look at these issues. And as everybody knows, I think we've been through a lot in terms of opiate use with an opioid epidemic that was initially blamed on pharmaceutical opioids and now a much broader epidemic. So we, I maintain my interest in that and was delighted to join PROP when I went to uh, Seattle. And, and that was in the early 2000s. And that's how I met Andrew, who will introduce himself, I'm sure. Yes, thank you. Uh, Dr. Andrew Kladny, um, welcome to the show. Thank you for your participation today. Thank you for uh, having me. And uh, yeah, so I uh, became uh, interested or began working on the opioid crisis in the early uh, 2000s. At the time, I was working for New York City's health department. And New York City had just merged its health department with its mental health department and was interested in tackling some public health problems that had been falling through the cracks, uh, and one of which being death from drug overdose. And so when I started working for the health department, I was given the assignment of reducing drug overdose deaths in New York City. At the time, <clears throat> most of those deaths were occurring in New York City's poorest neighborhoods, neighborhoods that had been hit hard with drug addiction epidemics in the 70s and uh, which was mostly heroin and then crack cocaine in the late 80s and early 90s. And in the early 2000s, survivors from those previous epidemics were still struggling with their addiction and dying at, at high rates. And uh, in addressing that problem, I became interested in addiction treatment. I began treating addiction myself and expected that the patients that I was going to be treating were going to be uh, folks from New York City's poorest neighborhoods who were struggling with addiction uh, to heroin and, and other uh, drugs. And instead, when I started my practice, the majority of the patients that were coming to see me were from New York City's middle-class neighborhoods and from New York City suburbs, individuals who had become addicted to prescription opioids. Either they became addicted to prescription opioids that had been prescribed to them by, by their clinicians or they became addicted to prescription opioids that were very easily available and then used recreationally. Um, but either way, um, I was seeing a, a new problem emerging, and that got me interested in uh, tackling the opioid crisis. You know, I didn't really even understand the magnitude of what's known as the opioid epidemic throughout the United States until around 2015 when I uh, was paying attention to a, uh, a panel discussion at the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists that focused on geriatrics and uh, didn't realize, you know, 760,000 uh, people in, in the country have died since uh, 2000 from, from drug overdoses. And we know that the, the pharmaceutical manufacturer that has been in the news many, many a times um, that, that actually kicked off a, 
a four-part series on Netflix called The Pharmacist, which focused on a pharmacist out of the state of Louisiana um, in the death of his son and what he experienced as a community pharmacist. And then my experience in, in the strategy sector of opioid usage disorder and medication-assisted treatment centers, where when we uh, employed um, multi a multitude of providers, the, the physician, the pharmacist, um, even getting into diet, and we, we saw outcomes accelerating and people stabilizing faster. And there's so much to this. This is, it's convoluted. It's extremely complex. The difference between treating addiction and the difference between treating pain and, and the hairs that can be split within that. But PROP is an interesting organization. And the reason for this um, three-part series to kick this off is to get more pharmacists involved in collaboration with physicians who focused on, who are focused on pain, who are focused on addiction. Um, and through my time with uh, an organization called New Season, which focuses on that medication-assisted treatment front, um, I learned that there's actually addictionologists now who do who do nothing but um, addiction therapy. Dr. Andrew, can you? define or give us some kind of some kind of barrier between addiction treatment and pain management and I know that's a slippery slope and I know there's a lot to that but can you frame that a little bit into um, you know your own experiences as well as um, uh, props attention yeah well you know the, it's a great question and uh, there's you know, quite a bit uh, one could talk about uh, in terms of the relationship between uh, pain and, and addiction. One thing I would just say off the bat that I think is important for, for your listeners to, to understand and, and something many health professionals don't realize is that when it comes to opioid use uh, for the treatment of opioid use disorder, the prescribing of opioids uh, like buprenorphine, for example, a partial agonist opioid, um, is, a, is a treatment that is evidence-based. It's a treatment where the benefits of long-term use of buprenorphine for the treatment of opioid use disorder outweigh the risks. When it comes to opioid use for chronic pain, however, uh, and when we're talking about you know, round-the-clock use of long-term opioids for an individual with a condition like low back pain or fibromyalgia or, or chronic headache. When it comes to these pain conditions, long-term round-the-clock use of opioids is not an evidence-based treatment. It's a, a treatment where the risks of using opioids are likely to far outweigh the, the benefit for the vast majority of of patients, and and one of the reasons we we have an opioid crisis or an opioid epidemic, and and I think when we, when we use the term opioid epidemic, I think the to be really specific, well, I think we should be what we're really talking about is an epidemic of opioid use disorder or opioid addiction, the sharp increase in in the number of Americans suffering from the condition of of opioid use disorder. One of the reasons that I'd say the main reason that we have this epidemic of opioid use disorder in the United States is because 
prescribing of opioids long-term, particularly for chronic pain, really began to explode in the mid-90s. And as the prescribing took off, the rates of addiction to opioids and the rates of overdose death involving prescription opioids really increased almost directly in parallel from around 1999 to around 2011. That's really interesting. And and so I'm I'm wondering where we have an ability as, as those healthcare providers who are focused on those things and the disease states that that probably are one-offs or condition sensitive, uh, such as like sickle cell, for example, in pain management. Jane, how do you help prescribers? How do you help providers? How do you even help pharmacists kind of manage disease state specific pain management um, with regards to the, the, the beliefs of, of prop and kind of the standards that you're helping to build? Well, I think the first thing that people don't un- understand is that chronic pain is not a single entity. There are, there are a lot of different diverse conditions that can result in chronic pain. But most chronic pain, most of the common chronic pain conditions like the, the uh, back pain and fibromyalgia and headaches, most of those chronic pain conditions are what we now call chronic primary pain conditions. That is where you can't really find a, a fixable lesion or injury or something gone wrong that you can actually fix. And that for those conditions, most people nowadays would recommend not certainly not using opioids. In fact, it's interesting that NICE, which is the um, National Institute for um, Health and Care Excellence in the UK, and the standard that is often followed in Europe has just actually said that, that no analgesic should be used for these conditions and that it's preferable to use alternatives such as exercise and acupuncture and psychological interventions. But that leaves probably another 10%. So I would say about 90% of these pain conditions, you know, we're really re-examining what we should be doing completely and maybe not even including any pharmaceutical interventions other than um, antidepressants, which can be helpful. But the other 10% are also really diverse indications. Sickle cell, which you mentioned, is actually one of the most challenging and difficult pain conditions to treat. And it really stands out on its own because it has so many complex contributing factors. That, But there are other conditions. Um, There are conditions like multiple sclerosis or post-hepatic neuralgia which, you know, each one of those conditions really needs a, a different approach and there's no simple answer. And each one of those conditions, opiates may be one of the suitable um, indications for, for opiate drugs. Dr. Andrew, what do you think is the, the best way to kind of either divide, to conquer these issues with the pain patients are, are facing and in addiction slash 
pain management and the pharmacist role when you work with uh, ongoing patients who are going to need additional oversight. They're going to need additional, you know, handholding. They're going to they're going to need ongoing treatments. How do you what what do you say? How do you um, stage that when you have a, a team in place that can really kind of surround that that patient? It could be a counselor, it could be the physician, the primary care physician, a pain specialist, a pharmacist. Um, talk to me about like a, a treatment modality. Well, you know, I think one real challenge we have is that during this era that we're really still in the midst of, uh, this era of very aggressive opioid prescribing, an era in which opioids were prescribed not just aggressively for, for chronic pain conditions, but people who appropriately received opioids after surgery or, or a serious accident were prescribed uh, or were, were given a prescription for too great a quantity um, and for too long a duration and wound up on opioids long-term with a diagnosis of, of chronic pain to justify the continued opioid prescription. And so what I'm really describing is a situation in which we have literally millions of Americans who are now on long-term opioids which were started for conditions where they really should not have been put on long-term opioids. And different terms are used to describe this population. Um, sometimes they're, this is, they're described as legacy uh, patients. And um, just because they were put on opioids for conditions where opioids should not have been prescribed doesn't mean that they can now come off easily. Uh, when you've been on opioids for a long period of time, they they lead to, to changes in, in the brain that can make it very difficult for someone to ever come off of opioids. And so th this has become a, a real challenge. And in some cases, you have these legacy patients who see an older clinician, and some of the very aggressive prescribers tend to be older physicians um, who might be retiring. And, um, and when these patients have to find a new prescriber and they get on the phone or they try to find a primary care doc and they're calling around and they, they explain that they're taking very high doses of opioids, sometimes in, in combination with benzodiazepines. And um, they're having a very hard time finding prescribers who will take them on. And so and in some cases, they're getting abandoned. In some cases, they're in a situation where they may wind up abruptly without any opioids which can be an excruciating experience for someone who's physiologically dependent on, on opioids. So how to manage this population is, is really challenging. And um, in many of these patients may be convinced that the opioids are helping them uh, because before they take their first dose in the morning, uh, they, they wake up and the previous dose has wore off uh, while they were sleeping. They wake up there and they're feeling very uncomfortable. They're, they're feeling a significant increase in, in pain as the previous dose wore, wore off and they take their first dose of the day and now they're feeling a bit better. And so th some of these patients may be under the impression that the opioids are actually treating their underlying pain problem when in reality, the relief that they're experiencing from, from taking opioids would be the relief of the pain hypersensitivity from withdrawal. And so 
these patients may be very reluctant to to come down on their their dose and and many of these patients are very angry right now um, because of because it is becoming harder for them to find clinicians who will continue to prescribe. Some of them are very fearful about what will they do if they lose access to a legitimate prescription. Will they wind up on the black market or will they have to go to a methadone maintenance clinic? Because some of these folks have tried to get themselves off of opioids and and realize that that that's not something that's easy to do. Some of these patients are very angry at the the CDC, which put out a guideline calling for more cautious prescribing. Um, they some of them are very angry at Prop, which has been advocating for more cautious prescribing. They feel as though they're being punished for the bad behavior of, of so-called drug abusers or, or so-called addicts. And um, they feel like, you know, they were taking their opioids responsibly and, and now, you know, it, they're being penalized un, unfairly. And so how to help this uh, population is something that we really need to do a better job at. And it's an area where I really do think that um, all health professionals pharmacists, physicians, nurse practitioners, um, and, and government as well um, need to come together. We need, we've got a real systems issue uh, that, that has to be addressed. So that's a really good uh, lead in to a question that I had. Um, Jane, would you set the stage for us um, just reviewing for the listeners the overall mission of PROP is to reduce the opioid-related morbidity and deaths uh, by promoting cautious and responsible prescribing practices. Um, how do you see this uh, becoming, how do we expand this? How do we go from a, a very blanket statement to becoming much more defined based on um, a, a specific patient's needs? Uh, individualized um, pain medicine, individualized addiction medicine. And I think those are two different buckets. Well, when PROP first came into being, it came into being when we were in the midst of quite clear over-prescribing for the treatment of pain. And that was really PROP's raison d'etre, was to attack that, you know, what, what always bothered both Andrew and me and anybody that uh, joined PROP was that some of the harm was being caused by well-meaning doctors who didn't really realize that they were causing harm, but actually what they'd been taught to do was causing harm. So we had a single focus, and that was to, to promote more rational prescribing by doctors, particularly for the treatment of chronic pain. Since we started, of course, things, things have changed. One of the things that happened is that we were successful in persuading the medical community that the opiate drugs were not really very useful for the treatment of chronic pain or long-term pain for the vast majority of people with chronic, chronic pain conditions. And that led, as Andrew just described, to you know, the, the combination anyway of the over-prescribing in the 1990s, early 2000s, and the subsequent efforts to stop that and, and, and be more reasonable with opiate prescribing and more selective, 
but we were left with these legacy patients. So now I think prop, you know, we feel anyway that prop should have a role also in the treatment of legacy patients because it's all part of a rational and responsible opioid prescribing by physicians, which is what, or by clinicians, because it's not just physicians that prescribe opiates or treat pain. So we really wanted to, to be relevant to, and, and pharmacists, anybody who's involved in, in the treatment of pain. So we really have two, two distinct problems now. One is this overlap between addiction and pain, which occurs with legacy patients, because we really re need all physicians treating these patients to have an understanding of both addiction and, and pain and how to treat the pain. And, and the answer is not simple. The answer is not necessarily to take people off their opiates, because as, as Andrew already said, it's really difficult to come off opiates once you've been taking opiates for years. And a lot of these patients have been taking their opiates for a very long time. And then, you know, we do have quite a lot of success with tapering patients very slowly and getting some of them off altogether. And I have to say that those are our successes and those patients do much better. They feel much better. They, it doesn't make any difference to their pain. It doesn't get better. It doesn't get worse, but they just feel better because they are no, no longer under the cloud of being on an opiate drug. But that unfortunately doesn't happen with all patients. There are other patients who find it so difficult to taper that we do switch them to buprenorphine, which, you know, people think of buprenorphine as being a, specifically an addiction treatment, but it's actually very useful for these legacy patients. We can stabilize them on buprenorphine, and you actually do get very good analgesia from buprenorphine, which originally, before it was commandeered for the treatment of addiction, was developed and used in, in Europe quite widely as, as an analgesic. So, you know, we try to, to um, advise people that buprenorphine is not just an addiction treatment and that buprenorphine is very useful treatment for stabilizing legacy patients. And then we have the primary care physicians who for a long time have been told, you know, opiates are helpful. Um, it, you know, you can, you can transform people's lives by giving the pain, pain relief from opiate medications and now being told, well, you shouldn't give op opiate medications anymore. We're not, we've, we've withdrawn that advice. And, and we also suggest that you should try and take all your patients who are on high doses of opiates off altogether. And then they don't know what to do because in the most physicians' careers, apart from the older ones, all they've ever learned to do is give, give medications. There's a paucity of education about how to manage pain in medical school. There's even a paucity in, in specialty training or primary care training. So that's a big area that we, we need to tackle so that people know how to manage chronic pain. And what I would say, although there's no, there's no nothing simple about managing chronic pain, but there is one simple premise, and that is you have to have the engagement of the patient. You can't just passively hand out treatments. It doesn't work. But chronic pain management is very 
tough and you know it requires a commitment from patients and a partnership with patients and that's really the the, the basis of what we would recommend now is that you have to build that relationship and and help people with anything they can do to preempt getting severe pain and there are lots of things they can do Dr. Andrew, talk to me about the guidelines that um, PROP assisted uh, the CDC to come up with. And I believe this was in 2016 or 17, uh, when those initial guidelines were put in place. Um, was this uh, something that, that your organization approached the CDC with, or did the C CDC put out almost like a request for assistance in coming up with the new guidelines? Yeah, it, it's interesting that um, your uh, your question you had asked, you asked about how prop assisted the the CDC with the with the guideline. Um, we actually, uh, I'm not sure that assist is, is the right uh, term, and it's a it's a pretty touchy subject because there have been there was a concerted effort by the opioid industry, um, by opioid manufacturers, particularly Purdue Pharma, even more than some of the other uh, opioid manufacturers, tried to uh, make the CDC's recommendations on opioid prescribing appear controversial. And, and one of the ways that they did that was to suggest that Prop secretly wrote the, the guideline. Um, and... Um, it's even. It was even. Put, there was sort of a narrative push that that prop had failed in an effort to get the FDA to change uh, the labeling on on opioids, and so we went to the CDC to create a guideline. And um, that that statement actually that claim appeared uh, in. Um, uh, on social media, pushed by by someone working for the opioid industry, and um, so Prop didn't uh, uh, secretly write the guideline. We didn't ask the CDC to to write a guideline. Uh, the CDC recognized very early, actually even in two thousand six, that the rise in opioid prescribing, this change in in practice that hadn't been fueled by new evidence that opioids were safer or more effective than previously believed, but that had really been driven by, by marketing, um, was, was fueling an epidemic of opioid addiction and overdose deaths. So the CDC really recognized that prescribing practices needed to move in a more cautious direction. The CDC working with uh, an expert in evidence-based medicine drafted a guideline and pulled together what they called the core expert committee to give the CDC initial feedback on this draft that it had put together. And on that core expert committee, um, there were of, of a committee with probably a dozen or more people. Two of those members uh, were from PROP, including uh, Jane, uh, Dr. Jane Ballantyne is with us, and Dr. Uh, Gary Franklin, another uh, board member of, of PROP, were, were part of that group. And so that the fact that they were on a committee that um, looked at the first draft and gave initial feedback um, based on that, a claim was made that Prop actually secretly wrote the the guideline, which we we didn't. Uh, I will say that the reason that 
industry fought hard to make this guideline appear controversial was really based on two recommendations that posed an economic threat to manufacturers, particularly of extended release opioids. Um, the, the most concerning was an upper dosage limit in the guidelines. So one of the recommendations was that prescribers should avoid going above the equivalent of 90 milligrams of morphine a day. And for manufacturing, and this may, is probably true for, for most pharmaceutical products, the highest dosage, dosage unit of, of, of most medications has a higher retail value, sometimes significantly higher, even though for the manufacturer of a drug, it may only cost a few pennies more to make the higher dosage strength. So that recommendation that clinicians should avoid going above 90 MME should uh, should clinicians follow that recommendation, you would see much less prescribing of the highest dosage unit opioids. For example, the 80 milligram OxyContin, if taken as prescribed, is 160 milligrams of oxycodone a day. That's equals 240 milligrams of morphine in a single day, way higher than that 90 uh, line that the, the CDC drew. And so Purdue and uh, actually did the math on how much it might cost them should clinicians follow that recommendation, and they came up with a figure in, in the billions. And so they fought very hard. Um, they even tried to uh, they even threatened the CDC with a lawsuit to try and block release of, of the guideline. And when all of this failed, the industry went about uh, pass, having legislation passed to, that formed a task force within HHS that would issue competing recommendations uh, to the CDC uh, guideline. And so PROP got caught up in... In this, um, we certainly were in favor of the CDC guideline. Uh, we, there might have been some recommendations that we would have tweaked or written differently had we actually written the the guideline. But there was really nothing controversial about its recommendations. In fact, they were quite tame. And about a year or so after the CDC guideline was released, the VA and Department of Defense uh, came out with its own guideline, which actually had much stronger recommendations for more cautious prescribing. Well, this has been eye-opening and ear-opening for the listeners since we're just listening. Um, this has been an exciting um, entry into uh, forming stronger uh, collaborations between physicians and pharmacists that are focused on pain management and who are focused on addiction and the, uh, the razor sharp uh, difference between those two. And I think that there, the guidelines are exactly that. And I wanted to ask Jane, you know, your opinion, when you have a physician that is in good standing, that knows their patient, that also um, has a, a pharmacist that they've worked with and they trust, and you have that triangle between the patient, the physician, the, 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 um, the pharmacist to really uh, kind of 
get into the specifics of a of a patient. That's obviously the best case scenario. That's not always the case, especially with addiction. When we talk about guidelines, when we say, hey, before you start an opioid therapy for chronic pain, clinicians should establish a treatment goal with all of those patients. It should be individualized, including a realistic goal for pain and function and and what's going on with the patient and should consider how um, uh, whatever whatever drug, whatever medication is being used, an opioid therapy, for example, might be... uh, might be continued or might be started uh, and what the benefits are and if there's risks that need to be um, weighed in and clinicians need to um, really assess that. That's a lot to, to think about. That's a, a lot that, that comes into that, especially this day and age with all the sensitivity around it. And it generally makes sense to have that approach. And then we get into, just as we were talking, Jane, we were talking about sickle cell, Parkinson's disease, spinal cord injuries, multiple sclerosis. So I think there's an opportunity that we're opening up with this kickoff session to bring in physicians and pharmacists that are focused on addiction, and then another one focused on uh, pain management. And Jane, do you think there's uh, a specialty or a difference between those where we could have collaboration focused on pain management versus focused on addiction? Well, I think the, the model that you, you mentioned where you have a primary care physician, because after all, primary care physicians are the group of, uh, of clinicians that do most of the chronic pain care and most of the opiate prescribing, together with a a pharmacist, because a pharmacist may have more frequent interactions with patients who are on opiates than even the primary care facility or the primary care clinicians themselves. So it's a very important uh, uh, relationship. And actually, a lot of uh, a lot of primary care practices and even pain practices, including the practice that I work in, we have actually have three pharmacists who work with us and a very important part of the the team. I'm not sure that I would agree that there's a sharp line between pain and addiction. I don't think it is sharp. I think it's quite fuzzy. And I think that anybody prescribing opiates should understand addiction. So for example, if you're going to use opiates for an indication that you think is a reasonable indication for opiates, like maybe sickle cell is a bad example, because as I said, it's very complex, but someone with multiple sclerosis who has a, a a horrible disease that's limiting their functionality in life and who's a very low risk. They don't have any particular risk factors, either age or any past substance abuse. They're a suitable candidate for opiates. Even that, even that person can get into trouble with opiates if they're not carefully managed. So it's always important to, to be watchful when someone's on on opiates. And then, you know, as we've both said already, we've now got an enormous population of legacy patients too. And that's another example where you can't really tease apart the pain and addiction 
worlds because even though I would argue that there are a lot of pain patients we don't want to call addicted because just just the word addiction has an enormous stigma and anyway they probably may not have taken their opiates in any way other than as prescribed by a doctor so a lot of people would not want to call them addicted nevertheless it's hard for them to come off the opiate in other words they're dependent on the opiate and that requires treatment in itself and that's treatment that's very similar to addiction treatment so i think you know it's a very important partnership and and it, 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 there's a lot of um, blurring between pain and addiction a lot of people who take opiates and become addicted even illicitly take them in the first place to self-manage pain and a lot of people who go to doctors with physical pain actually are seeking opiates because they have distress or emotional pain so again there's you know as we have said the venn diagrams overlap considerably well i am excited that both of you were able to make time to kick this series off i think is an important subject that we continue to get into um, into uh, pharmacists as well as uh, physicians that, that listen to the program. Uh, Dr. Andrew Kolodny, I, I thank you for your participation in opening this up and really setting the stage for uh, this series and, and Prop's mission. And uh, Dr. Jane Ballantyne, I thank you so much for your participation as well. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Nation. We're focused on um, the, the, the coming of more collaborations between physicians and pharmacists on pain management and addiction. And as always, I thank you for listening to the Pharmacy Podcast. <laughs>